In the late 40s of the last century, after a decade of private research involving experiments with binaural beat brainwave frequencies, extrasensory cognition, and rare extracts of a South American vine, Dr. Tomas Rosner perfected a technique whereby one could actually intrude into the psyche and see another's thoughts. Despite having exhaustively documented its rigorous work, he could find no institution that would even offer to review it. Forced to sell his invention, he found by word of mouth among those through whom he procured narcotics, a prospective buyer, the bête noire of an old New York family, Mr. John M. Dunn. Dunn was a voyeuristic connoisseur of the supernatural and the obscene, who had squandered his idle youth in the great libraries of Paris, those catacombs of departed authors, rummaging among their hordes of dusty and obsolete works, a literary ghoul who disturbed with profane fingers the charnel houses of decayed philosophies. He readily agreed to the doctor's asking price without haggling, delighted at the prospect of exploring such a bizarre novelty. Once adept at the operation of the apparatus, Dunn paid Dr. Rosner off and, under an assumed name, rented a shabby house within view of Sing Sing Prison. In the timeless night, while the convicts fitfully slept, with the aid of a set of stolen blueprints and his new mind-reading device, he raided their memories cell by cell, at liberty to savor the forbidden thrill of thefts, molestations, moonlit homicides in secret, without remorse or consequence. Within a month, the prisoners, telling each other about the nightmares from which they had all begun to abruptly awaken, discovered they shared striking similarities. First, processions of alligators and tortoises filed through a swamp crowded with faceless people and shrieking orchids. Next, a shadow man, at whom they looked directly but could never quite see, would watch them in utter stillness from an empty house, while invisible hands probed behind their eyes as they had to stand naked, legs locked in place unable to run away. Their compared descriptions of the house were identical, including its location just outside the walls. By mutual agreement, it was planned that the first of them to receive parole would search this house out and find if it really existed, and investigate the source of their troubling dreams. A few days after being freed, their chosen spy was able to inform them with a smuggled message in code that not only was the house real, but he had broken into it at night found a gaunt, mustached man in a silk smoking jacket, seated bolt upright. His head was thrust back, both eyes gaping, mouth stuck open in a stiffened gasp, clenched hands gripping the arms of his chair in front of a, quote, scientific machine. A handwritten journal on the desk told the whole story of his adventure, prying unconstrained through their psyches, plundering the haunted memories of criminal after criminal, seeking ever more shameful and audacious experiences until finally he wrote, on July 7th, of his overwhelming desire to witness telepathically the next execution in the prison's notorious electric chair. Hi, I'm Jamie Murky. <laughs> and I'm Michael Tatum. And this... Is Ghoul Intentions. We are so <laughs> quarantine loopy at this point. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You guys don't even know. Yeah. Thank God we don't uh. have to do like a serious podcast. Oh, God. The two can of us. Imagine. Can you, I fucking, no, I can't. All we <laughs> I, talk about is people who die. Like, ugh. I know, but like, but like in a funny way. Right. <laughs> 
It's entertaining. We tell horribly dark stories of true crime and death, and there's paranormal, yeah. you know, after effects. Yeah, but you know, but we do. But so. not like in a respectful way. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yesterday. Uh, oh, no. It was totally off the cuff. But yesterday, this is just how the paranormal is just accepted in our household here. So we have three people living here, myself, Brandon, and uh, our friend slash helper assistant, Devin, who's responsible for making the cosplay that you've all been seeing on my Instagram that's looking terrifying and awesome. And believe me, it looks even more terrifying now as more details are coming in. But uh, yesterday, <laughs> Brandon was walking. He just had a blanket on uh, over, his, over his clothes because he was chilly because it's Brandon. And he was walking past us uh, in the living room uh, to go to the studio to do a little recording. And <laughs> when he did, I guess the the blanket caught the end of that vase, you know, that that little uh, ceramic vase that's on the one side near near the painting, mm. Jamie. And uh, it just fell over and it shattered. Oh, right. Right. Okay. And I mean, on all of us, and we we're like, oh, we got up. We made sure the dogs were nowhere near it. So we cleaned everything up, but it was fine. And I didn't care. It was an old, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was an old vase, but not. It wasn't like, the mirror again. No, it wasn't the mirror again. And um, then we cleaned it up, and afterwards, Devin just looked at me, and he's like, I'm not going to lie. The, my first thought when that thing fell over and broke was that Robert did it. <laughs> <laughs> I side with Devin. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Nuke, uh, Nuke Top's five video this week? It's There's a lot no. of dolls. There's a lot of dolls. Be warned. It's pretty fucking okay. creepy. I'm we pretty sure half earlier, of them are but fake, we, but they're creepy. Right. Normally, I watch. We watch at breakfast, <laughs> so it wasn't on at breakfast. So we have to wait till tomorrow for breakfast. It's like everybody's late <laughs> on stuff. I know. Weird. Where about? do they get uh, off? Should we talk about that? Um, we're sorry we're late on last week's episode. Yeah, we're sorry. And we it didn't was, have a ghosticles. Uh, we were in a series, and by we, I mean I was in a series of technical <laughs> mishap after technical mishap. It was a real fucking nightmare. It was gross. Um, it was gross. And so the if anybody wants to try to understand what happened, the past <laughs> two full episodes, I had trouble getting uploaded. And it's because the, uh, I guess, the, the uh, host, they the took podcast a, they host took, yeah, that uh, I used. It was weird. It was so weird. They changed it. They changed. They had an update, which is what was pro- the problem with my Microsoft Word last week. I got real southern there in my frustration with Microsoft That's Word. That's my Microsoft week. Word. This technology <laughs> just ain't working like it ought to. I don't know what happened. It's all them updates. I hate an update. <laughs> and so it's too much like up Chuck. It's the same thing. I sound just like my Aunt Linda. Updates. So, uh, updates. So, <laughs> updates. It's update. So they uh, when I updated, right. <laughs> they changed it. Their uh, limit to how long how you know, how how much you can upload. And uh, our episode was too long because it had too many, and then we had to figure out how to minimize that file, and we finally got it figured out, and that it just took that long to figure it out what had happened. It was too awesome. And it was too awesome. They couldn't handle it. Was it was way too awesome. Way too awesome. <laughs> so I hope you guys like that. Yes. Sorry about the missing ghosticles from last week and but, the late episode. Hey, but you got an extra uh, one a couple but, weeks back. So. <laughs> that's true. And... Um, uh, and I have thoroughly saged my house because at some point, something has to happen. <laughs> like, it was just point, one like thing she, after another. She texted me with all the shit going on. I was like, Jamie, sage your fucking yeah. house. Like, just to be on the same. I, I don't did. even necessarily believe in it. But at this point, 
It's got to be easier than waiting for Microsoft fucking customer service. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I did. I did. And that was after my AC went out upstairs. Right. No, I was like, like, oh, you better sage. And of course, Something what happens? Yeah, what happens? <laughs> then, then the temperature drops again. <laughs> right. Of course, it would be really hot up here right now, though. If that's I did true. If they that's see, true. We had to sleep downstairs. Luckily, we have the most comfortable couch in the world, so uh, that a, was fine. It's a man eater that couch. It really is. <laughs> Once you're on it, you're really? never getting up unless someone's there to help. Yep, um, it's true. That's how it works. Uh, speaking of that, we should probably credit the opening story. Oh, yeah. What a good story. Um, and uh, that person wrote it directly for you. That's how I feel. <laughs> I'm really good with the with the run-on sentences. Um, it's just <laughs> something about my own uh, verbal style. But uh, that story was entitled The Onerophage by S.W. Rice. Onerophage, I think, is a made-up word, but um, it's... Um, Onera means dream. It's ancient Greek or uh, uh, Latin, perhaps, for dream and phage. It means eater or eat, to eat. So oh. it's the dream eater. eater. Ooh, that was really good. Not Who as good. Who is it by a, again? Uh, by someone named S.W. Rice. It is a uh, creepypasta, for yes. sure. It was good. Yes. I really okay. like it. was very much in the vein of, of H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft. Very, yeah, it was very, good. Very good exercise in style. But yeah, nice it's good. It's really, end. really good. Have you ever seen, it makes me think of the, uh, there's a movie that came out in the late 90s called The City of Lost Children. It's a little French film. And, uh, but it's really, it's gorgeous. It like, it stars Ron Perlman, who is fluent in French, incidentally. And uh, oh. uh, he's great in it, but it's about, uh, the premise is there, this is this weird scientist and the guy they have playing the mad scientist like looks the fucking part like he's just he was born to play that role he is so creepy looking and he's like he's aging prematurely because he can't dream and so he mm. he has his his little uh, his his uh, minions as it were um he has like this little family of of freaks that are all like him they're all like the invention of someone else and uh, because he can't dream he has them go out and like steal children and he tries to steal their dreams with this big machine but because oh. uh, but there he's so scary the only dreams he's able to inspire in the children are nightmares which ages him more um mm, mm-hmm. That's fun. It starts with one of the creepiest fucking sequences ever put to film. It's a little boy, like a little child, a toddler in their crib. And it's clearly a dream. You can tell by the filter and the way, you know, the camera is kind of, you know, waving back and forth that it's a dream. And the child sees that, oh, this this Santa Claus has come down, uh, comes down the chimney and is like giving him toys and stuff. And it's really cute. And then suddenly there's another Santa Claus coming down the chimney and then another Santa Claus. And then by what Ooh. starts is kind of cute and, and, you know, very nostalgic becomes like this room of Santas that are all just like drunkenly stumbling and throwing things and destroying the room. And it's like, oh. And then the kid wakes up and you see that he's like hooked up to this big machine and he's crying. And the scientist is like, fuck, 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 fuck. And you're like, what? The? <laughs> it's such a it's such a great opening. But What's uh, the movie again? it's called City of the City of Lost Children. Um, and mm. it's very bizarre. It's kind of a comedy slash bizarre gothic fantasy. I don't know how to describe it. It's It's got its own style. But that filmmaker, uh, it was a pair of filmmakers that went by the name Jeanette and Carl. One of them went on to make the movie Amelie, which most people mm. know. And the other one, um, I'm not sure what else he's done lately, but they did another film called Delicatessen. Ding! <laughs> Before City of Lost Children, they made a film called Delicatessen, which is kind of a, um, let's just say, relevant. Uh, <laughs> it's about a, it's about a, a, 
a, a tenement building filled with people that are kind of living out the apocalypse <laughs> as best they can, still trying to maintain uh, like the semblance of normal everyday life. And they do so because the uh, their landlord is also a butcher and occasionally because there's like a shortage of meat or something in this society. And so like he will lure, he'll put out classified ads for handyman and they'll come and work for a little while. Then he'll kill them and sell the meat to the tenants. <laughs> and it's as you do, as you do. But it's yeah. not a horror film. It's a it's a weird dark comedy, and it's really funny. Uh-huh. Like I I like it. It's very French, and it's very filmed in a very cartoony kind of way. It's sort of like uh, it kind of reminds me of Terry Gilliam's style, but a lot, oh. uh, but a, just a lot even weirder if you can imagine that. Can't. <laughs> but I highly recommend it. Those are two films you should okay. you should track down and see. Uh, those of you listening, uh, City of Lost Children and Delicatessen by Jeanette and Caro. Uh, and I don't know if they're available on uh, Netflix or anything, but they're bound to be on Amazon. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, but they're oh, really good, surely. and they're they're beautifully shot. Like just the way they look is just absolutely gorgeous. They've aged incredibly well for being for being mm. 20 years old. They still look yeah. like they were they were filmed yesterday. Huh, okay. Huh. Anyway, right, how's well, my rambling little opening? Sorry about that. <clears throat> What's our that's title? All right. What's Never our title apologize today? for rambling. Our title today is uh courtesy of our patron Alex Wright. Yay! Who suggested it. Yay, Alex. We love Alex. And it is things they don't teach you. And that is from The Kindly Ones by Neil Gaiman. We use Neil Gaiman a lot we in do. this house, in this podcast house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we call him NG. That's right. Uh, the entire quote is, I've been making a list of the things they don't teach you at school. They don't teach you how to love somebody. They don't teach you how to be famous. They don't teach you how to be rich or how to be poor. They don't teach you how to walk away from someone you don't love any longer. They don't teach you how to know what's going on in someone else's mind. They don't teach you what to say when to someone who's dying. They don't teach you anything worth knowing. I mean, I have feelings about that. <laughs> I come is from a long line of teachers, accurate? and they're right. What? Right. Yeah. Um, what is a it great pretty accurate? Quote, you think for our for our show today? I think for so. For your end? Yeah, I yeah. do. Yes, I do feel, and I, I imagine you're into my my story is. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, my story is weird. My story, fair warning, is going to be another two parter. So it'll ah, it'll end with a cliffhanger. Okay. It's just too convoluted and complicated not to break up because there's it involves so many weird like what details that I have to kind of take a break and describe. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned a lot about the French legal system. Oh. <laughs> put, let me put it that way. But um, okay. But you're starting us off, are you not? Yes, I am. I'm excited. I am doing the Devil's Tramping Ground in North Carolina. Ooh. Yeah. As, a, as, a, as opposed to all of North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> There's a place in North Carolina that they reserve just for the devil. I thought the whole state just Never for mind. trampling. Um, well, he d- he reserved it for himself. To be fair, <laughs> like, I like North Carolina. It's fine. It's a very lovely place. Um, <laughs> uh, I can think of worse. Okay, places. so I have a couple sources here. Uh, North Carolina ghosts, which uh, is excellent. Actually, they got really got into the history. I really uh, so North Carolina ghost was great. An article from the Coloradoan by Megan Maloris, Malaris mm. called "Digging for the Truth: North mm. Carolina's Devil Tramping Ground Mystery." Ew. Here we go. Oh God. The Devil's <laughs> Tramping Ground is one of the most famous haunted places in North Carolina, and North Carolina has a lot to be haunted about. 
That's <laughs> very true. No, uh, that's <laughs> a lot of, lot of ghosts there. Yeah, lot of, they do. A lot of Thank skeletons. You. Congratulations, in the North Carolina. <laughs> uh, it's located in the southern part of Chatham County, hmm. south of Siler City, in the woods near Harper's Crossroads. And the Devil's Tramping Ground is more than anything a mystery. Ooh, I love a mystery. I know you do. Okay, so. <clears throat> It is an area in the middle of the woods where it's said nothing has been able to grow for more than a century. The area also happens to be a perfect circle that is 40 feet in diameter. It's like the top of my head. <laughs> 40 feet in diameter. You nothing, cannot find a hat. Nothing has grown there for a century. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big... Barren head. That's just... what we're trying to say. Uh, okay. <laughs> Inside this circle, you will not find a flower, no tree, no grass, not even a single little weed. People have tried actively planting seeds in the circle as well, but nothing sprouts. If vegetation has been transplanted to the circle, the plants will wither and die, oh. which is not at all ominous, is it? <laughs> oh. What's going on there? Mm -hmm, but that's not all. <laughs> but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. The do dogs will tuck their tails between their legs and whimper when brought into the circle if you can get them into the circle to begin with. Wild animals avoid the circle altogether. Compasses will sometimes lose their direction in the center of the circle. Oh, I love this. I love, sh I love shit like this. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm excited about it. So objects that have been left in the circle before dusk will have been moved outside the circle by morning. What kinds of things, you ask? Anything. What kinds Rocks, of things? Stones, <laughs> boxes, uh, campers. What? Numerous campers, including a troop of Boy Scouts, have set their tents up inside the circle only to wake up the next morning, unzip the tent, and find themselves outside the circle. Oh, my God. It's said that people who have spent the entire night inside the circle will go mad. Mad! Champagne mad against the fireplace. Smash. <laughs> mad, I say. Mad. 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 Smash. Uh, champagne against the fire, fireplace. That's what that smashing noise always yeah. is. Yes. Okay. The Devil's Tramping Ground is known very, it's very well known <clears throat> and a fairly popular spooky destination, especially at night, which is evidenced by the beer cans, cigarette butts, and other trashy signs of trashy people who only care about jumps in the dark and not the history of a particular location, respecting nature, or leaving somewhere as clean or cleaner than you found it. It's like a cruise. Kind of. <laughs> I really have a thing about littering. Oh, Apparently, it pisses I've, me off so fucking much. I, it like, drives me crazy. There is something about, like, anyone, I don't care who the fuck they are, anyone that would just leave a beer can or a plastic bag, just, you know, on the grass, near the, you know, whatever, it, it's just like, who the fuck are you? Like, who mm -hmm. does that? Who's, like, I, oh, you know, you know they're slobs. You know you'd go inside their house and be like, hmm, oh, congratulations, you finally picked that thing up off the floor instead of just kicking it under the goddamn refrigerator. Yeah. Granted, yeah, it was an entire cantaloupe, so you had to, but fuck, I hate yeah, those Yeah, immediately, when they do it, immediately I'm like, that is a disgusting human. You right. can't help it. Right, right. It, it, anyway. It's right up there it, with people that don't pick angry. up after their animals. 
when they're taking their, mm. their dogs on a walk. Or oh, something. my People God. People that, that just won't do it. I'm like, bitch, you got a dog. You know you're going to have to pick up poop. It's how this works. It's how it works. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. Yep. Pisses. It's such a trigger. Okay. So clearly people go to it for experiences. But what is the truth? Mm. Well, let's start with the myths behind the legend. Uh-huh. The classic myth is that uh, is, is the myth where this area got its name, Devil's Tramping Ground. The devil comes out at midnight and quite literally tramps around mm. in a circle, which is a little fabulous to me. He's kind of like, stop, 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 stop. He's he's working. He's working working on his TikTok dance. That's right. Maybe he's squatting while he's doing it. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But why? Why is he tramping? It's because he's pacing whilst thinking up new ways to ruin humanity, of course. (laughs) Bringing the soul to damnation and all that shit. (laughs) Yeah. You know. Doing, doing what you got to do. I love it. So it's the scorching heat of his cloven hoof prints that kills the vegetation and has rendered the soil barren. He angrily brushes aside anything left of his on his path, his great strength easily able to toss aside even the heaviest of objects. When he walks in his private spot of the earth, the devil drops the illusions with which he disguises himself when he appears to men. In his natural state, the face of this fallen angel is so horrible that no man can see it and remain sane. So oh. they go mad. Mad! mad I tell you. champagne against the fireplace. <laughs> we need to make a gif of that. I know, right? The idea has also been put forth that the soil in the Devil's Tramping Ground is barren because the circle was the site of a UFO landing, and the strange radiation from its extraterrestrial engines has permanently exterminated the grass. Other explanations are, and we've heard those before, of of places where they believe— UFOs have landed, and that's and nothing grows there anymore. Oof. Other explanations are that the Devil's Tramping Ground was the site of a battle between two rival Native American tribes. Supposedly, the battle was so violent that the blood of those killed soaked the ground so thoroughly that nothing would ever grow there again. The losing tribe then fled to the mainland entirely onto the outer banks and became the Croatan tribe that befriended the lost colonists. You might remember Roanoke. Uh, I do. And Croatoan carved into a tree. Yes. One of the theories about where the Roanoke colonists went to live was with the nearby tribe, the Croatans. Another story along those similar along similar lines is that the site is the burial ground of a great Native American chief named Croatan, and that the gods keep the spot barren out of respect. It's a good name. Now, it is, Croatan. Google does not respect this chief, though, because when I searched it, I didn't get a great Croatan chief that was known, you know, who I get. And he was a great Cro- Croatan, was uh, Manteo. He was a tribe chief on the coast. The Devil's Tramping Ground is about 160 miles f- uh, from the closest coastline. Mm. And it's about 260 miles from where Roanoke was located. The Croatan and Manteo befriended the Roanoke colony and gave them food after they arrived too late to plant and harvest the, cro- the crops. Hmm. Manteo ended up traveling to England twice and was christened in Roanoke. He was huh. the first known Native American that was christened for the Church of England. Okay. Wow. 
And it, so it seems to me that it's weird that the gods would <laughs> like not <laughs> cover like you know what I mean. It just doesn't add up to me that yeah. that's probably the right one. Yeah, it's also yeah. a little far. No. It's a bit far. A little bit. Well, we a pushed far. it. We're Especially out for of those the zone. Days. Like two hundred, two hundred yeah. miles is a is a jaunt. It's a jaunt, and uh, he disappeared too with the lost colony. Nobody heard from hmm. him after they couldn't find them. And that they uh, that went missing. The people went missing in 1590. Yeah. At least that's when they got there and were like, where the yeah. fuck is everybody? Such 1590. A story. So that's not a thousand years. Yeah. Right. No, it's not it's, that's not. That's not even yeah. close. Yeah. <laughs> uh barely halfway now, there. If it was a tribe battle, and that's indeed where the Algonquin tribe was that eventually became Croatan, mm-hmm. possibly, but yeah, that's fair. We don't know. But I mean, we don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, what is the truth about the thousand years of barrenness? Well, the mystery of the Devil's Tramping Ground has been known since Chatham County was founded not long before the War of Independence, War for Independence, whichever. So, late 1700s. Hmm. Story's been passed down from generation to generation since then, which is still like 250 years. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not a thousand. It's not a thousand. So. Someone's fudging the numbers. This fudging. We're generation to generation. They just keep adding. Uh, (laughs) I still say, though, for it to knowingly, it has knowingly been barren for 250 years at least. And we don't know about the native tribes that were there before when, how long they knew, and that, that is it was. that is strange. I mean, I know it is it is perfectly possible for uh, land that has been overworked to eventually just become mm-hmm. barren, and there's nothing they can really do to save it. That does happen actually rather often, but right, uh, this is in the middle of a forest. It seems strange that it would just happen naturally. I mean, I suppose it does, obviously, but I wonder what causes right. it. It's so odd. Well. Um, another myth that's more recent is this, uh, so there was a sign that was posted at the site that renamed the Devil's Tramping Ground as the Chatham County Vortex, and it claimed that the site is an anchor of a Magdalene crystal column of energy. Magdalene energy is this concept that has come out of England in the past decade or so. This theory proposes that the planet is surrounded by a web of divine ma-ray energy that is an expression of a divine feminine presence, bundling this idea with earlier English traditions of Jesus traveling to the British Isles at some point in his life, while also incorporating this into like this mysticism that was based on Jungian psychology. Oh, Jung- Jungian? Jungian, right. Yeah, You're yeah. right. You know, this German is a lot student. of big words. It's a lot of big words. So, I'm so proud of you. You're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. Jungian <laughs> um, psychology and feminist readings of Arthurian legend. Hmm. So we've got this Mare energy, this divine feminine presence. Jesus went to the UK. <laughs> Jungian psychology, mysticism that goes along with that. And feminist readings of Arthurian legend. Did you get all that? It's a lot of. That's a lot of. That's a lot to unpack there. Um, it's a hodgepodge. It's a. It's, it's a, a hodgepodge a, of a potpourri, if you will. It is a potpourri of, of new age ideas. Yeah, each more a, daft than the next. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense, and so 
But the reason that this is kind of special yeah. is it's the first time that this spot is being associated with positive supernatural forces instead of negative ones. Now, what what about it is positive, though? That That's my, like, who's looking at that well, going, you can't plant anything there, shit gets moved, it's really weird and desolate. Positive. <laughs> right, like, I think I know, their, their idea is that it's a vortex for positive energy. And so that's where, you know, there's mm. a lot of growth around it because of this positive. So it's like the uh, eye. You know, I, it's like the eye in a storm of positivity. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but what's it? But that me, seems you know, a stretch to me. Like I don't know. That just seems like yeah. someone's just like, I look at this and I see treasure. <laughs> I'm just like silver linings. Yeah, silver lining. I'm like it's a barren patch yeah. of land that's probably like it's people disappear and shit happen. Positivity? I don't know. I mean, I wish I right. had. I wish I had their optimistic outlook, but I just don't. Well, what's interesting, though, is that it is – you don't normally get an area that has a history of negative supernatural all of a sudden getting a positive. That, that's what's so, so – So it's a switch. Yeah, that's what's so odd about it. And it's an example of how much the culture is changing from mm. when we first found out about it. That's so true. When we first found out about it, that's where it got its name, right? That's where the Devil's Tramping Ground came from. Mm. And – that is a part of a deep American folk tradition. Yeah, yeah. So that is the devil. Okay, devil is in everything. The right. devil seems to have come to Chatham County with the Scotch-Irish settlers who arrived in North Carolina during the 18th century, populating the course of the Cape Fear River, the Unwaris, Unwaris and the Appalachians. The settlers were mainly immigrants from Ulster and the counties along the border between England and Scotland. Mm, mm. The devil was very much a part of the culture they brought along with them. There had already been quite an obsession, as we know, with the supernatural in parts of the UK long before the immigration to the New World of the right. Scotch-Irish in the 18th century. Oh, yes. You go back to the Pendleton Witch Trials. Mm. We'll remember that Scottish-born mm. James I, who became king in 1603, was obsessed with witches and demons and even wrote the book on demonology along with adding crap about witches to the King James Bible. Yep, yep, yep. Knowing a crowd pleaser when he saw it and knowing who was the right crowd to please, William Shakespeare hmm. is said to have written the supernatural elements into the Scottish play <laughs> for that superstitious King James. Yeah. There was a cultural fixation on witches, ghosts, and even goblins. When these settlers moved to America, they brought these ideas that they were haunted by demons along with them. Hmm. Right. So what is what does that do? Well, much of Southern American folklore and folk music owes its shape to the Scotch Irish, and the devil was a central part of that story. Uh, the culture remains with devil take it. Devil you know, has the best music. Devil may care that these are right. Southern. Devil take the hindmost. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, the devil went down to Georgia. That's very southern. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you can see it in in the naming of locations, right? Uh, for the Scotch-Irish, any strange or dangerous place would often be named for the devil. These names are all over North Carolina, too. Apart from the devil's tramping ground, North Carolina has devil's rock, a devil's courthouse, seven devils, Kill Devil Hills, which is located just north of the lost colony of Roanoke, hmm. devil's branch, Devil's Chimney, Devil's Nest, four Devil's Elbows, two Devil's Forks, a Devil's Knob, which is funny because it's like Devil's <laughs> <hair>. and, <laughs> and even 
And this one's for you. The Devil's Tater Patch. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, and thus the secret origin of the Tatum clan is revealed. (laughs) We we were born in a potato patch. (laughs) The Tater Patch. The Devil's Stork flew into the potato patch and put a diamond (laughs) under a vine. Oh my God, that's great! And, it's and like I love it. Moon. It's like it's like North um, Carolina is like the Dollywood for the devil. It is, it is, and that happens a lot in the South. Like I'm, I don't. There's devil, devil's peaks all over the place in different areas and yeah, devil's oh yeah. dens oh, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Devil's dens. My my neighborhood had a devil's den. The, right, like, right. It was, it was a it was a little copse of trees that was like really thick and dangerous, and so we used to call it the devil's den. Yeah. Yeah. So for whatever reason, this small barren patch in the woods was at some point identified as being in some way supernatural. And since the cultural context around the spot has shifted, the idea that it's supernatural has persisted even though the stories and the reason why have changed. Mm. So going back to the name, you had a very particular perspective on what the devil was to the Scotch-Irish back then. These days— Thanks to films like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and The Omen and other Satan-starring films, we expect a lot from the devil. (laughs) We do. The devil has had a lot of pressure put on him by modern media. Yeah, he's really got to show up. He's all powerful, right? <laughs> he is bad, and he will cause some shit. And there, and there's nothing you can do. Like once he's there, you're fucked. Like right? Yeah, that's, you're fucked. All you can do is. is try to figure out how fucked you are. Right. Exactly. And and what number you are in the death? Right? <laughs> who's dying first? Are you gonna be third? Are you gonna be fifth? Who's the slut? Who's going for? You know all that. That's what right, you get to figure right. out. But there's no hope. It based upon culture now, based upon these movies and these things like mm. that. I mean, even the demons get a lot of credit. Take yeah, I guess I never thought about that. Supernatural Wait. filler, the 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 fallen. Oh yeah, you remember? Yeah, yeah, I do. Denzel, I do. Time is on and the my devil side. still wins. By yeah. the Spoilers. Um, Spoilers. I thought that was such a great movie, and people. I was really it. good. I thought it was really good. Um, I liked it. Um, it. it just makes me think how interesting that was. Like in it Matt, seems bleep out the spoiler. Or yeah, just bleep it out. <laughs> don't, don't let people hear it. Matt's just like, beep, God, beep. I can hear him right now going, "Fuck." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. More shit for me to do. Uh, no, I. It's interesting how uh, in in the olden days, in the in the colonial mm-hmm. days, like the devil figured in stories. Like the devil was a very omnipresent evil, but it was he appeared in the form of kind of a challenge. Like he was something to overcome or to avoid or whatever. Like he was a test of your faith. Whereas now if the devil's there, we're like, no, you're fine. Like these, he's no longer a challenge. It, he's the sign that the story is over. Right. It doesn't matter what you believe. You will suffer and die. Yeah. And the end. Interesting. Nothing's going to save you. We have, we and, have certainly gotten uh, cynical, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where's the country headed? It's just different. Horror on, on a whole is different now mm-hmm. than term. it was in the 18th century. Back then, Two, the devil was a complicated character. Yes. And it, and he was equally comical as he was this, well, he, like, threat to existential existence. Well, he was, he was more of a right? classic trickster figure. Yes. You know? Yes. There were t- and there were tons of stories of the devil being outsmarted by people who tricked him. Yep. Yep, so, yep. He, you know, into using powers against him or whatever. But there's a lot of those stories. You know, the the devil went out of Georgia. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, like that, that. All these stories are pretty 
common in old folklore, but nowadays it's like, you know, he's just, he's walking in a circle. That's, yeah. that's what he's doing. He's, he's walking in a circle trying to figure out how can I get these, how do I trick a cynical human race? <laughs> right. <laughs> because now they're like, you're stamping in a circle. Wow, that's, that's really cute. scary. Stop trying to make yeah. fetch happen, Satan. Right. So, <laughs> and that's and that's what, you know, they thought that's what he was doing. And it totally made sense that he would just be out there in his, you know, normal form. Going, <laughs> in his, in his skivvies being like, God, son of a fucking shit. What am I going to write? So, <laughs> the threat of this devil in the woods has been replaced with other threats. He's much more violent now. He throws you out of the middle, you know. Uh, yeah. The interpretation of the site has been seen through the lens of the oh-so-common dark powers associated with Native Americans as oh. well that we see a lot in white American folklore. Yep. We talk about this a lot when we talk about the cliche of things being buried on Indian burial grounds and when we're like, ugh, <laughs> so fucking bullshit. Yeah, it but, is, and know, it's such why? a thing. It's like, well, because we had to vilify the people we were exploiting so that we could, you know, yes. feel good about treating other human beings like fucking shit. Yeah, it's this complexities of guilt, and and you have to establish a psychological legitimacy of stealing Native, Amer Native American land and lives. And the, this concept came about that the first inhabitants of this country were a supernatural force— that needed to be eliminated. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Validating genocide. Mm -hmm. Validating this is best for God. This is best for everybody because look at how bad this is. And it it validates the possession of the land. It is also bullshit. Oh, yeah. But completely. that's how people excused it. Absolutely. And that's how people got through it. And even now, that's how people will excuse, oh, well, it was... A Native American burial site. That's the one you hear the most. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. it doesn't make it okay. Even if it was true, it doesn't make it okay. But right. it's right. never true. It's usually almost never true. Uh, so with the idea of the Devil's Tramping Ground being a site for UFO landing, mm. you've got a possible way of dealing with Cold War anxieties, along uh. with rapid changes in technology and social structure that happened in the latter half of the 20th century. <clears throat> Again... You've got this threat of uncontrollable forces that could completely disrupt a person's life. And the cultural context shifted along with the cause of the threat. Mm -hmm. It went from demons to aliens, from magic to radiation. Yeah. Oh, that was a major shift because of the fear of the atom. Mm -hmm. Yep. Was yep. the new was the new religion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, this mystical spot in the woods of Chatham County remained. I like the positive spin on it that the Magdalene crystal energy provides, though, personally. I think that's nice. Of course, <laughs> whether or not our culture is ready to embrace supernatural forces when they've already been terrified of them is up in the air. It's like the witch, though, right? Like, I right. get it, girl. Go join them witches. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. Good for her. her. You do. I don't even know why you'd stay with those fuckers. <laughs> Get out. I'm coming with you. Like, ugh. <laughs> I, the true. Worst. True. Watching that, well, there's another movie I watched recently where, like, it had a similar ending, and I was like, is this supposed to shock me? Because the whole time I'm like, this is a very satisfying ending. <laughs> I know, right? Like, why like, am I cheering for is, the bad part? It's, it's not that bad I don't know part. if that's... Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. So funny. Uh, most of the people, because of the stories, and I'll say that most of the stories that I've heard, the ones with the Boy Scouts, is told by people in the Boy Scouts, but there's no, in, I couldn't find any initial beginning of the story, which happens a lot when we're looking for it's, some of these It's like stories. snipe hunting, which is a Boy Scout yes. tradition. You know, it's like, oh, the snipe, we're going to hunt the snipe, which doesn't mm-hmm. exist, even though there is actually a bird called a snipe, and incidentally, but that's not what they mean. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and on Letterkenny, it's a totally different thing. But if you haven't watched Letterkenny, you have to. It's so fucking funny. It's so fucking funny. Uh, so the, uh, 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 the other stories. Now, there are a lot of people that say when they get in the middle of it, they do have a tendency to feel weird um, and get kind of disoriented. Now, whether or not it's because they know they're standing in something that supposedly the devil has walked in or that a UFO. Right, right, you know, there's right, some right. suggestible reactions there. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the big things, I can really see specific examples of it. And uh, more often than not, I was I would read story that somebody said they were there and it was kind of weird. Something kind of weird happened. And then a lot of people from the area would be like, yeah, that's bullshit. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that said, a, you know, a lot of the people who go there, they still have a lot of people that go and they want something supernatural to happen. Negative, positive, it doesn't matter. They want something. And they usually leave disappointed. Mm. Here's why. The site has shrunk significantly in this century. Hmm. Its diameter now measures about 20 feet instead of 40. So it is growing in that 20 feet difference, right? There is grass and stuff growing there. It also seems that the devil or the aliens or whoever else was keeping the spot clean has moved on (laughs) as the objects left in the circle are no longer removed. The beer cans, the cigarette butts, those will be right in the middle of the circle. Uh, And it said, I saw in one report, that a rusted refrigerator sat in the circle for years until it was eventually hauled away by human hands in a normal pickup truck. (laughs) And Indiana Jones was inside. Yeah, <laughs> but okay. So then you think, what's the deal with the soil, right? Let's figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things said, uh, like natural salt lick that's located there. It's not out of character for North Carolina. They'll have locations that just have a lot of salt mm-hmm. in the ground, yeah. and so grass can't grow. It can't grow if there's too right, much salt. Right, right. It's also been said that there could be a lot of iron or copper, specifically copper, mm. in the ground, and that would mess with the compass. Yeah. If your compass yeah. is in there. That makes sense. And it might throw off EMF feelings for dogs, right? To, true, true, To true. keep animals away from it. So what do you do? Test the soil. Mm, right. Okay. That's what soil scientists, because apparently that's a thing, Richard Hayes <laughs> decided to do in 2005. But those results showed no copper. Nor did they prove another one of the common theories, high salt concentration. Hayes said nothing in those results was high enough quantity to explain the inhibiting of growth. It's because he Hayes didn't said, test for the devil. He said, I can't, I can't explain it scientifically. I can't explain why nothing's here. Hmm. Hayes added, I've mapped a lot of soils in five different, different counties in North Carolina for the soil survey. Didn't run across stuff like this. In September of two, so it's almost like different soil. In September Weird. of 2015, Hayes came back. So 10 years later, he's coming back, mm-hmm. and he retested the soil. And that came back with some shocking observations. Uh-oh. The new soil sample results add only another layer of complexity to the scientific anomaly. The findings suggest vegetation should be growing in the devil's tramping ground. 
Even stranger, the barren soil inside the circle is now more fertile than the tree-lined area outside the circle. And yet, why? nothing is growing there. Yeah. What? Well, then, and the why is, imagine all the campers that come to stay. You can't have a camp without a campfire. Uh, Hayes okay. explained that the bonfires made by trespassers are what caused the change in the soil to happen. He said hardwood ashes have made the soil's potassium level peak off the charts. Normally, uh, too much potassium, though, would be damaging to mm. a plant. It would be toxic to right. the plant. But it's not too high. Hmm. So it's a high enough potassium for growth, but not too high to keep plants from growing. And as for the P- the five pH readings inside the circle, yeah. Hayes explained that it is only slightly below the optimum range of 5.6 to 6.5. Hmm. Hayes said... I'm stumped. There is nothing in there that prevents plants from growing. The higher numbers we're seeing inside the circle from a lot of different elements are all higher because of the fire. In his conclusion, there has to be a reason other than soil fertility for why nothing's growing there. But if it's not soil, if it's not salt and not metal, what is the practical explanation for this phenomenon? Hmm. Is there a practical explanation at all? That's so weird. It's a motherfucking mystery. It's a mystery. Ooh. I and bet. that is the story of the Devil's Tramping Ground. Oh, that's so good. I like it. I, love, I know. It's like, I ooh, love ooh. anomalous spots like that. Like, you know, that's yeah. like soil science has done its best, and they're still like, well, whatever it is, science can't explain it Don't yet. I'm, yeah, we're probably yeah, going to find yeah. some weird, who knows what we'll find in time uh, that will explain it. But man, it's fucked up. It'll. It's the kind of spot that if we research enough, I bet we'll will uncover or someone will discover a new scientific principle. Yeah. That's like, oh, this is I just this like this thing. idea, though, that something happened on this ground, that it is sacred for some reason. Well, clearly something it, happened uh, there. Something, yeah. And so it has to be barren for a certain amount of time, and it's gradually getting smaller and smaller uh, and until it will go away, like after it's served its time, whatever this land is. Yeah. And it is private property, though, so if you go, please know. <laughs> it is private property. Uh, <laughs> Nothing and, will grow on you for a yeah, while. It might. Um, it might. But um, that's yeah, weird. So. That's so strange. Who knows? That's so strange. Who knows? I'm I'm obsessed yeah. with with areas like that. Um, be it like Bermuda Triangle type stuff or areas where yeah. there's just people, um, where people get uh, there's certain areas. Of, there's a name for it. I can't with the. Uh, um, where people will experience intense anxiety regardless of of mm. what they're feeling when they go into it. And it's not like whether they know the area like has some reputations. Like, <laughs> mm. Yeah, like quarantine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ye old quarantine. Uh, ye old quarantine. Oh, my God. Well, speaking of quarantine, that's going to play into uh, my story. But do you want to take a quick break to refresh our drinks before we yes. begin my very long and convoluted and terrifying story? Yes, I'm very excited. Awesome. All right. We're back and refreshed mm. and ready to get into the story. Yeah, now, I, I must confess, I had never heard anything about this story before, even though it is relatively recent. Like, it's happened, you know, within, uh, well within our lifetimes and probably within the lifetimes of many of our listeners. But um, it's... God, it's a doozy. It's not exactly supernatural, but there will be supernatural elements that come into play. Uh, so it's um, it's more of a... Of a, I guess a, well, maybe the title would give it away. I'm calling it, <laughs> I'm calling it the Latter Day Rasputin. 
Oh. And uh, I owe the bulk of what I know about the story from a YouTuber by the name who goes by Oki's Weird Stories. Uh, O-K-I. Uh, maybe O-K-I's Weird Stories. And, uh, man, uh, they're great. Like, the the... Oki's does a lot of uh, different little stories, but he'll, uh, uh, I assume he, and maybe, let's just say they, um, will do multi-part series on one episode. So they deep dive and they go into a lot of detail about stuff that I'd never heard of before. And this was one of those stories that really caught my interest a few months back. And I was like, "Ah, I'm going to bookmark that. And so I did some more research. So I owe a lot of it to uh, Oki's Weird Stories. I strongly recommend you check them out. Also, Wikipedia, uh, several articles on coolinterestingstuff.com, which was fun. Uh, risk, the <laughs> article such a detailed name. <laughs> it's such a detailed name, right? It's just as yeah. advertised. Um, an article entitled Aristocrats and Demons by Michael Joseph Gross for Vanity Fair and the memoirs Diabolique by Jelaine Divedrines. Now, there are a wow. lot of there are a lot of French words uh, <laughs> in this, so I apologize if it sounds like um I'm just choking on bread, but it's really just the French language. <laughs> okay. I'd rather you choke on bread than me. So wait, that this... came out wrong. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Patty Lapone, the great singer Patty Lapone, posted something recently. She's like, "If ever I am choking on a gob of peanut butter and I do not have the diaphragmatic support to spit that shit out." Don't save me. The Patty Lapone you know and love is already dead. <laughs> oh, I love it. She sang at me once. Oh, I know. I'm so jelly. Oh. Mm. So good. All right. Let's get into this really weird story about how an entire family becomes brainwashed by one man. All right. Yes. And this is a long story. There are a lot of names and a lot of details in it. So if you need me to slow down at any point, uh, I'll try. <laughs> okay. But I've tried to go at detail and leave in only the stuff that seemed um, particularly meat for the story. So uh, let's begin. And again, it's going to be two parts. So this is only part one. So there will be a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. Now, the picturesque village of Monfan of Monflanquin. I'm already fucking up. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. The picturesque village of Montflanquin looks today more or less as it did way back in 1256 when it was founded and walled cities were all the rage in the south of France. Now, there's a reason for that. The 20-year Albicinian Crusades instigated by Pope Innocent III to stamp out heresy ravaged the country from 1209 to about 1229. In the aftermath, a guy named Duke Raymond VI took it upon himself to finance the rebuilding of villages across the region that had been burned, and the result was the preponderance of bastides we see today, that is, tightly packed military communes encircled by high masonry walls, and hence Montflanquin's austere medieval charm, and it is a beautiful commune, village commune, or whatever you want to call it. It's part of a larger uh, town, but it's on its own. And if you look up pictures of Montflanquin, it is, it's breathtaking. And it's listed as one mm. of the, one of the 18 most beautiful sites in France. Oh. Now, the once celebrated Divedrines traced their lineage back three centuries and their presence in Montflanquin for almost as long. They were Protestant aristocrats. The Divedrines enjoyed many generations of wealth and privilege before being taken down a peg following World War I and the fall of the Habsburg Empire, which was a fate suffered by the peerage all across Europe. They got jobs, started businesses, did their part to maintain the communities where they lived, yada, 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 you know, became more or less normal working class folk with maybe a little more money than most. 
Uh, and in fact, the 20th century Devedrines were only aristocratic by blood. Their coffers were a far cry from the glory days. What few properties the family had held uh, onto from the, the from uh, its earlier era uh, weren't much to look at. In fact, many of them were dilapidated. The quaint manor house in Montflanquin, Chateau Martel, was the family's preferred summer getaway, but even it wasn't exactly a palatial estate, just a very nice house. Now, the population of Montflanquin tallied at just over 2,300 as recently as tw- uh, 2006. And they liked the uh, Devedrines well enough. They were a generous, hardworking, civic-minded bunch, dutifully involved in the commune's affairs. Gelaine, who will figure heavily in this story, was the director of a Paris-based polytechnic school. Her brother, Charles André, was a respected gynecologist and obstetrician. The eldest brother, Philippe, was a civil engineer for Shell Oil. By 2001, however, the Devedrines had mysteriously secluded themselves into Chateau Martel, seldom venturing out. And what's odd, this change wasn't gradual. In less than two years, 11 members of this once prominent clan went from sociable to paranoid, sequestering themselves as if waiting for the apocalypse. Their only activity was to file a lawsuit in 2003 against a newspaper that had run a gossip piece on the so-called recluses of Montflanquin. The Devedrines won the lawsuit, citing an intolerable invasion of their privacy. But, as many people started asking, what had happened to them? Why did they almost never leave the crumbling chateau on the hill? What transformed the Devedrines from the family all of Montflanquin knew and loved into the village crackpots? The answer, a master... Quarantine! (laughs) (laughs) No, but you get a sugar cube anyway. Um, Thank you. The answer is a master manipulator by the name Ferry Tillet, or Terry Tilly, <laughs> as I'll probably call him a lot. <laughs> I like uh, that. Terry Tilly. Um, now, the self-styled Svengali first wormed his way into the family's confidence back in 1997. Jelaine and a group of concerned parents had formed a coalition to help save a Paris school teetering on the brink of financial collapse, one where all their kids happened to be going. Now, following a long and drawn-out legal battle against the school's inept administrators, with the help of a lawyer named Vincent David, the coalition gained control of the school, and Jelaine was appointed the director. Now... To say she was in over her head would be a fucking understatement. The work ne- <laughs> necessary to keep the school afloat long enough for their children to at least graduate was more than Jelaine could handle. The school was hemorrhaging money. The computer systems were ancient. Registration was at its lowest ebb in decades. So casting her net for a contractor to help address the school's smorgasbord of maintenance issues, and there were a lot of those, Jelaine sought a referral from a lawyer, uh, from the lawyer Vincent David. David recommended an outfit owned and operated by one Terry Tilly. <laughs> or Terry Tilly. Tilly didn't make much of an impression on Jelaine at first blush. The slight, bespectacled, middle-aged bureaucrat just kind of blended into the scenery. Over time, however, he made himself crucial to Jelaine's sanity. He was a fixer. No matter the problem, Tillet was able to smooth things over by flashing a smile and waving his hand. When Jelaine mentioned in passing about how antiquated the school's computer systems were, despite this not being in Tillet's job description in the least, he had it replaced at cost the very next day. So, he was a godsend. And if you look at pictures of this guy, he just kind of looks like a normal kind of nerdy dude. Like, he doesn't have... 
you know, when I say Latter-day Rasputin, you might picture someone with a very intense gaze and a beard and, you know, maybe there's this looming stare. Right. At he least. had he had none of those. <laughs> he, oh. looked, he he looked like someone that might want to talk to you about Green Mountain Energy outside of a half price books. Um <laughs> I mean, just, that person can't convince me of anything. <laughs> exactly. <Mm-mm>. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I'm not giving you my social. Um, but Jelaine wasn't just drawn to Tillet's competence. She found him also alluringly enigmatic. His past was shrouded in mystery. He spoke very little about himself and always backed up his claims with action. Based on what he could manage with just a few phone calls, he seemed incredibly well-connected. And in fact, the impeccably dressed, fast-moving little man was, quote, discreet, eternally busy, and always one step ahead of everyone else, end quote. Vincent David assured Jelaine that Tillet moved in powerful circles, that he knew practically everyone, and that few and far between were the power brokers who didn't owe him a favor. Now, why such a dazzling man would be interested in a flagging school was an even bigger mystery. Jelaine couldn't fathom why Tillet gave a damn. David had an answer. Tillet, he said, quote, saw the school's potential. The lawyer even went so far to say that Tillet's presence was the deciding factor in the lawsuit to begin with. Now, needless mm. to say, this piqued Jelaine's interest. She maneuvered to keep Tillet close, hiring him on full-time in 1999. David persuaded Jelaine to give Tillet an official title. She did, and within a year, the school's registration saw an exponential increase. Tillet had his sights on raising the academy to international renown, attracting students from all over the world, particularly China, as he saw a lot of potential there. Hmm. So... So capable was Tillet that before long, Jelaine dealt herself out of the decision-making process altogether, convinced her judgment paled in comparison to that of her right-hand man. Tillet even even gave her wayward son, Francois, an internship at one of his many companies, setting himself up as the boy's mentor. And indeed, the moody, aimless teenager flourished under Tillet's guidance. Never mind that Tillet was commanding twice Jelaine's salary at the school and helping himself to healthy bonuses. In name, he was just an assistant, but in practice, he was running the goddamn show. And Jelaine didn't have a problem with this. Later, she would write in her <laughs> memoirs, Diabolique, quote, What a psychological comfort for me. The man who understands me so well, who knows how to appease and advise me, is now with us on our team. I could not have imagined a more promising solution. Starting to see where this is going? Yeah, me me too. Now, to give you an idea, really just to give you, or to point out rather, that you couldn't possibly have an idea how bad this is going to get, let's jump ahead and quote extensively from the Vanity Fair article by Michael Joseph Gross, who opens his story 1,100 kilometers from Montflanquin in Oxford. Quote, Far, far down the high street, long past where Oxford's golden spires give way to neon strip malls, you come to a dense residential zone of tidy townhouses, row upon row. In one of these, in a small room, a woman sits immobile in a chair. She has been held prisoner in this room for days. Eight, ten, hard to to keep track when they won't let you sleep. In shifts, day and night, her captors take turns berating her. This woman is 58 years old. Not long ago, she was the mistress of a chateau near Bordeaux. Uh, Now, she is fed a single meal each day. She is not allowed to bathe or use the bathroom. She is drugged, and sometimes she is beaten. The captors Mm. include members of her own family. They say she knows the number because she is the one, the possessor of knowledge that will free her and the rest of them to fulfill their destiny. 
They want the number of a bank account in Brussels that will lead them to a secret that will save the world. They were selected for this mission by a global network of secretive grandees whose head, named Jacques Gonzalez, is said to be a cousin of the Spanish king Juan Carlos and reputed to be more powerful than the presidents of France, Russia, and the United States combined. The woman, likely. <laughs> the woman believes all this, just as her captors do, which makes her inability to recall the number that much more awful, but she can't. Finally, terrified and broken, she blurts something out, makes it up, a string of numbers. That's it. That is the account. Her captors are pleased. The door to the room swings open, and Christine de Vedrines is permitted to resume the rituals of daily life. Her relief is fleeting. Soon they tell her it is time to go to Brussels. Because she cannot recall the name of the bank that holds the account, they lead her up and down the streets from bank to bank to bank. At each one, she repeats the phantom number, asks for access to the phantom account, and is, of course, denied. At each one, wow. her dread grows, for it is only a matter of time before they come to the last bank in Brussels, and this bank, too, tells them no. Now... How do we get here, you ask? <laughs> it's a strange, twisted, and unsettling journey, to say the least. The woman Gross is talking about is Jelaine's sister-in-law, Christine. And if you're wondering how the poor woman came to be held hostage by her own family, well, for starters, she had the gall to harbor even modest doubts about Thierry Tillet. Let's go back to the beginning again. Tillet's patience was the stuff of legend. He waited in the wings for three years before picking his moment. Jelaine, meanwhile, was ideal prey for a sociopath like him. Not only was she buckling under the weight of complicated responsibilities and grieving the recent deaths of both her father and her older sister, her marriage had begun to sour. Her husband, uh, Jean Marchand, was buried in problems of his own and not exactly a comfort to Jelaine. Then let her susceptibility uh, to Tillet's sinister designs be a lesson to all of us. Good, sensible people who would otherwise spot a con artist like Tillet from miles away are all too easily manipulated when in stressful, transitory periods of their lives. So taken was she by Tillet's concern for the school that Jelaine became something of a compulsive oversharer, speaking to him as one might to a therapist. And you better believe Tillet was taking notes. In time... He knew all the gory details about the Divedrines, their squabbles, their personal beefs, money problems, petty jealousies, and, most importantly, the pecking order. Delay also came to know about the various properties the family owned. In August of 2000, Jelaine formally introduced Tillet to the rest of the family while they were summering in Montflanquin at Chateau Martel. Though the clan was a bit wary of opening the chateau to a total stranger, Jelaine assured them Tilly's presence would be a delight. She played up his powerful contacts, his dealings in the upper echelons of power, the breadth and scope of his knowledge. He could, she told them, turn their lives around, just as he had done for her. And how right she was. On the evening of his arrival, Tillet impressed everyone at dinner. He was refined, erudite. He could speak at length and with easy authority on any number of thorny topics, for example. His knowledge of encryption impressed Jelaine's nephew, who was an engineer with Microsoft. He doled out legal advice to another family member whose shady real estate dealings were coming home to roost. With yet another, he showcased an understanding of information technology far beyond what was available to the general public at the time. Tillet spent August in Montflanquin uh, renting a house near the chateau. He paid the family a visit every day, singling out individual members for one-on-one -on -one chats. He was, a social, hmm. he was a social chameleon, transforming himself to better suit the needs of whomever he was talking with. With Philippe, for example, Jelaine's older brother, who was a civil engineer for Shell, Tillet would offer comments like, you were in Algeria, you've seen war, you're the only one here who knows what I'm talking about, etc., 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 which is a very hmm. typical technique of the manipulator. They'll be like, it's right. just 
It's just you and me. These people don't get it, but you do. You understand. And you're, you're special. And you're made to feel special because you get what mm-hmm. the person's saying. Um, and, That's and grooming. He, That's classic it's, grooming. It's grooming. And he did this to everyone, and, and it worked. The Devedrines were dazzled by him. Now, around this time, the uh, Devedrines were entangled in a legal battle, yet again, involving the sale of one of their properties. The buyers alleged that the family had failed to disclose critical structural damage, and uh, Tillet stepped in to take an advisory role, and as if by magic, the lawsuit was dropped. So that hmm. added to his clout. Right, um, yeah. When Jelaine came under legal scrutiny herself for how she'd handled funding for an annual music festival, again Tillet stepped in to save the day. He seemed to be the answer to all their many and complicated problems. So, when Tillet asked to review the family's financial portfolio, the Dividrines were flattered. He persuaded them to drop their current financial advisors and allow his company, called Presswell Industries Limited, to manage their money. His insider knowledge of world markets, he insisted, would pay out an 11% monthly return on their investments. And amazingly, he made good on this promise in the first month. He wined and dined them. He let Jelaine's son stay at his New York City condo while the latter was there on an internship with a real estate mogul Tillet had taken the liberty of introducing him to. Tillet was, as far as anyone could tell, the real thing. The Devedrines counted themselves lucky to be under the wing of such a powerful, generous, and brilliant man. And so high was their regard for this dynamic little person that they hardly batted an eye when he told them he belonged to a covert organization committed to eradicating all forms of corruption. (laughs) The The organization, called the Blue Light Foundation, had its roots, he said, in King Arthur's Round Table. Yes, you heard right. (laughs) But wait, it gets crazier. What doesn't really? (laughs) (laughs) Amway, everybody. Um, Everybody, it's all about Arthur. Tillet. That's our connection. (laughs) Tillet said he was a secret agent sent by said organization to protect the Devedrines against an evil cabal that wished them ill. Their enemies were everywhere. And they, of course, were Freemasons, Rosicurians, homosexuals, and Jews. (laughs) Ah, God. All right. We we are cultural villains always. The Davidlines <laughs> were in the target of these uh, were the target of these odious forces because they, Tilly said, had the potential to restore France to its former glory, just as their ancestors had done while fighting Catholic oppression during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. Then again, when he at long last began to open up about himself to the family, Tilly said a lot of things. His mother, he maintained, had given birth to him when she was only 14 and would have been a professional figure skater had the rigors of child rearing not intervened. His father worked in the special services for the Ministry of Defense as a frogman. Tillet claimed to have briefly been both a semi-pro tennis player and a footballer. He was also a lawyer, a pilot, a professional skier, had parachuted from a military plane at 12 years old, was ambidextrous, a descendant of the Habsburgs, a distant relative of Elizabeth II, and on close personal terms with just about every celebrity one cared to name. And this is- I mean, isn't like a third of the people on the planet descendants from the Habsburgs? I don't know. No, I think you're thinking, may, there's a few, but I think far more people are descended from Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, the, no, Habs- the, Habsburg, one, the Habsburgs a... inbred a lot, so claiming to be related yeah. to them doesn't quite carry the cloud well, you think it does? I know. Well, <laughs> and the thing that it that happened is that there's a f- uh, line in your DNA. I, d- I saw this when I got my DNA sample mm-hmm. stuff back, and it, it's like the, the female line there's oh, if you are white, there's a high percentage as a woman that you are descended from Marie Antoinette's line. Mm, and mm, mm. um there's another like 
I can't remember. I want to say the chamber something, but I could be wrong. There's another I think, dude that. I just want, I believe that the Bene Gesserit from uh, Dune are real. It's a society that's been involved in like the evolution of mankind for thousands upon thousands of years to like basically making sure people will marry the right people so that they can produce, uh, you know, a perfect being. It's really quite racist. Mm. Um, <laughs> anyway, so for all these claims Tilly was making or Tilly was making, this is nothing compared to his claims regarding his college years. I could spend the whole fucking episode untangling what and where he claimed to have studied. Suffice it to say, wow. one supposed degree he was said to uphold to hold had to do with uh, online investment encryption as it relates to global corruption, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Now, of course, all of this was bullshit, as you might imagine, later when called out for his bizarre claims at trial, because there will be a trial, spoilers, Tillet offhandedly ah. suggested all his records had been seized by Scotland Yard, and that's why you couldn't find them. Because, you know, he was just that powerful. Anyway... Uh, Jean Marchand, who was Jolaine's husband, had his doubts about Tillet from the beginning, but he wisely kept these to himself. Tillet's hold over the family was alarming. He dropped hints that a Masonic group had its eye on a piece of prime real estate the family owned in the fashionable 7th arrondissement. Indeed, Tillet claimed that the Freemasons were so intent on acquiring the property that the Vedrines were in mortal peril. This may seem far-fetched, but bear in mind Freemasons are thought by many to be major players in Parisian real estate, and the group's influence in southwestern France is said to be even stronger. And Tillet did seem to know something about the dark side. By the spring of 2001, Jelaine was seeing Freemasons everywhere. Even longtime neighbors now looked like enemies to her. Jean Marchand worried that his wife's anxieties were slowly curdling into paranoia. He declined to comment, however, hoping... Slowly? <laughs> he declined to comment, however, hoping his silence would starve the strangeness. Then... On the afternoon of September 7th of that year, Jelaine stormed into Chateau Martel, dressed as if for a cocktail party and carrying a handful of dried flowers. She threw the flowers into Jean Marchand's face and screamed <laughs> nonsense at him, nonsense that to his ear sounded rehearsed. She called him, quote, weak, an outsider with no soul, that said uh, and said that the flowers which she'd cut from the garden of their home in an eastern suburb of Paris were a sign of his, quote, evil network. Marchand was dumbfounded. As his wife denounced him, her brothers, Philippe and Charles-Henri, took hold of him, gave him half an hour to pack, and put his ass on a train to Paris. He soon discovered that the bank accounts he shared with his wife had been emptied. And eventually, wow. in 2003, the couple divorced. Jelaine's brother, Philippe, divorced his wife over her concern this, uh, concerns that his involvement with Tillet would evaporate their assets. Her lawyer asked a French court to monitor Philippe's finances. A subsequent inquiry exposed a pattern of suspicious transfers and led to a, com a comprehensive audit of Tillet and the Defedrines. According to lawyers involved with the family, many of the unusual transfers were made to Presswell Industries Limited. Uh, whose officers included, of course, Tillet and several of the Debedrines themselves. Some of Philippe's money was used to build an apartment complex in the Alps. As their financial circumstances began to unravel, the family severed its connections to the world at large. At Tillet's behest, the Debedrines banished clocks and calendars altogether from Chateau Martel. In their view, none of the normal rules of the world applied to them, not even time. And their isolation <laughs> cut... <laughs> right. Their isolation... <laughs> Um, 
Oh, God. Their iso- they must have thought they were terribly funny, not having to worry about timing. Their, iso- their isolation cut a <laughs> devastating swath. Jelaine's daughter, Giamette, left her husband and forked her money over to Tillet without notice to his patients or his business partner, Charles Henri, walked away from his medical practice in Bordeaux. He and his wife, Christine... Wow sold their house there and a beach apartment in La Pila and handed over the proceeds to Tillet without question. Christine also turned her back on a once vibrant social circle in Bordeaux, including her old friend, the winery owner, Marie-Hélène Assel. For more than a year... She turned by... her back on a winery owner? Uh, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> I love that that's what you're getting. You're like, oh, <laughs> your friend runs a winery and you turned your back on them. <laughs> How dare uh, you? For more than a year, by phone and by mail... Essel tried to reach Christine. Uh, as Essel told Le Monde in 2003, Christine answered the phone just once, and then only to say, quote, I can't tell you anything. It's a family business. It's very serious. I may come back to Bordeaux, but in a different way. If I were you, I would be very, very worried. Now, presumably, <laughs> under Tillet's influence, the Divadrines even stopped paying taxes. Uh-oh. In 2003... That's, that's the, a big... Uh, <laughs> right. That's a good way to get uh, caught. Uh-huh. In 2003, the French equivalent of the IRS, Fisc, seized Chateau Martel's furnishings and auctioned them off. With the chateau now empty, family members moved into a house Philippe owned in Le Sol. Meanwhile, according to the family lawyer, Giamet, the matriarch, uh, made a large loan to Philippe, Charles-Henri, and Gélaine, her children. The money eventually also made its way to Tillet. Tillet, meanwhile, ran into legal trouble of his own for misappropriating corporate funds and skipped town, moving operations to Oxford, England. Far from relaxing his grip on the dividends, however, he reeled the men even further. By 2005, Tillet and his wife, their two young children, his wife's teenage daughter from a previous relationship, and Guillaume Divadelines, Charles-Henri, and Christine's oldest son, were all living in Oxford together in the first of a series of rental properties that would ensnare the owners in webs of litigation and, while the litigation was pending, allow them to live rent-free. Their, th- mm. their third landlord in Oxford was a man named Andrew Scully, a 49-year-old Irish carpenter. In 2006, Scully rented the Tillets and uh, Riom, the three-bedroom townhouse attached to his own, and the families became friends. When more of the Devadrines began to flock across the channel, Scully rented to them as well. Charles-Henri and Christine came first, joining their son. They took a house across the street. When the younger ones came, uh, Guillaume's siblings, Diane and Henri, and Gélaine's son, Francois, they rented some of Scully's other small properties around the city. Though they were supposed to be aristocrats, they weren't like any aristocrats Scully had ever seen. Diane made Sundays at an ice cream parlor and waited tables at a chain restaurant. Francois swept floors at a Burger King. Christine worked in a shop kitchen. And if Charles-Henri was indeed a doctor, what was he doing digging in the dirt for the Oxford Garden Company? Within the space of hmm. five years, virtually the entire Devedrines family had pulled up stakes, moved to Oxford, and elected, in effect, to trade nobility for a form of serfdom. Outwardly appearing as common folk, inwardly they shared an overblown sense of their own significance. Tillet, who spoke of the family's special destiny and warned of gathering threats, nurtured that dream, of course. Jelaine and her mother, Giamet, the matriarch, lived with Philippe and Brigitte in Lusseau, but all four of them were nevertheless under Tillet's spell. Only Christine, Charles-Henri's wife, and Jelaine's sister-in-law was beginning to see the madness in all of this. And she would pay for her doubts dearly. Oh. And there I shall leave it until no! next week. <laughs> no. 
It's such a good story. Oh, man. This crazy fuck. He gets his entire family to stop paying taxes, to, like, haul stakes across the channel to to fucking England and live near him. And to get entangled in all these lawsuits so they can live rent-free. Like, how? How? And again, if you see pictures of this guy, Thierry Tillet, it's spelled T-H-I-E-R-R-Y-T-I-L-L-Y, um... He is the most unassuming, nerdy little nebbish guy you can imagine. Like, yeah. He doesn't look like Doctor Doom. <laughs> he doesn't look like Morbius. <laughs> he just look. Uh. He looks. He you know. He looks like he should. I don't know. He just looks like an every average day schmuck. You know, like the kind of wow. guy that would you know that would listen in on a stranger's conversation and correct him. <laughs> You're like, that's that's what he looks like. Um, yeah. And that's and yet this guy had this crazy power that these people who were worldly enough, I mean, you know, they may have been a little disconnected coming from the aristocracy, but my God, they were traveled, they owned properties all over Paris, and they'd been everywhere. I mean, they were they had more experience of life than a lot of people are given access to, and yet they right. believed him when they're he's like, hey, I'm with the secret organization and I'm here to protect you. I mean. Mm-hmm. And most of the family bought it hook, line, and sinker. They were like, I mean, so this sounds crazy. crazy, but I'm special? I totally buy it. <laughs> well, and then I'm special also stopping a doctor and go garden? What? And go and work for a landscaping company. Not just garden, but like go yeah. and work for a landscaping company. That's like, what the fuck, dude? And it's all because the, they thought yeah. they were just like, well, we're just we're buying our time before uh, we shall rise again to be triumphant over the forces of evil, i.e. Freemasons and homosexuals and Jews. Right. Just like Jesus, I didn't. Wow. I didn't know we homosexuals were that powerful. Yeah. No one no. told me. Where's my special destiny? Yeah. But but yeah. Ugh, that's so crazy. I can't wait to hear the rest of it. I know it's such a good story. Yay! All right. Well, thank you. <sighs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Another smash. Um. Uh. But um. Yeah. No. Thank you. I. Yeah. Next week we'll. Hopefully everything will be figured out and we'll hear it on time. <laughs> Instead of yes, the last let's one. hope. <laughs> yes. So good. Well, wow. thank okay, you for well. your story about the the devil's patch you or the devil's tramping ground. Are welcome. The devil's tramping ground, which I need to say this. Jack does not like <laughs> tramping as a word. He thinks it should be tromping and that you should just say tromping even though it says tramping. I like tramping because it makes me think, especially for a second, I thought you said the devil's tramping gown. And I was like, I have my own tramp gown. <laughs> Don't we all? You know the devil has a tramping gown. That's just oh, has like to be. a whole wardrobe of them. Has to be. There's no way that that doesn't exist. Um, yeah. Well. Okay. So thank you, everyone. We uh, our chat on our Discord for the Patreon went really, really well last yeah. time. Yeah. Really, really good time with that. Everyone was so cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Join the patron, the Patreon, if you haven't yet. We have multiple tiers. Uh, the biggest thing, though, is uh, the Discord, and we we will chat on the Discord. Yes, So yes. check it out. Ghoul Intentions, Patreon, Patreon slash Ghoul Intentions. I don't know how it works. Just Google Patreon and Ghoul Intentions. <laughs> or go to Patreon and look up Ghoul Intentions. Yeah. There's all sorts of ways There's to do so it. There's so many paths. So, all roads lead to Rome. Yes. And we we appreciate the support from everyone who is on there. Yes, the we best. do. Um, but everyone who's listening, we really, really appreciate it. And 
Um, if you have stories, please send them in. Yes. You are home by yourselves. Surely there are haunted things happening all over the place. I mean, everyone's so, just primed for these experiences now. I know. It's time. Let's let's hear them. Mm-hmm. So, so send us your stories, ghoulintentions.com. There is a, uh, you fill out a form kind of at the top of the menu. You'll see. Submit your story here and then and then do that. And tell us yes. your stories. And then yes. maybe we'll read them on our Ghosticles episode, uh, which comes out Thursday. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. yes. So. Not good. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that's all I have. You got anything else? Uh, shout out to Matt, our beautiful and awesome engineer, who's, who's really yes. helped us through a lot of the technical bullshit uh, recording yes. remotely like this. Oh, my God. Matt, we love you. Our listeners love mm-hmm. you. That's right. We, we need to thank actually again, have Alex, him as a guest on the show at some point. <laughs> yes, definitely. And yes, thank definitely. you, Alex, for our title. Alex, you are always a font of knowledge and, like, just research. That's true. We like it. I like it. All right. Well, I guess that's it. We will talk to you at you. We will talk at you later, I suppose. <laughs> yes. I never really thought about it. Yeah, we'll, right. we'll talk and hopefully you'll listen. That's later. right. That's right. So until next time. Stay safe. And remember. Wash your hands. Yes. We, this wash is what your happens hands. every time. I tried to jump ahead. <laughs> and then, and then we're going to stay safe. We're going to wash our hands. We're going to self we're gonna distance ourselves. And we're going to wear masks. Yes. And remember. It's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on. <laughs> <laughs>